Don't forget to stop by the table on the way out. They have t-shirts and CDs and stuff out there, and uh, we could support them as they are on tour, uh, going all the way to Florida and all the way around, so keep them in prayer as well. Let's now, before, let's stand up, stretch real quick, say hi to everybody around you, and grab your Bibles. Go ahead and have a seat. Grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have one, grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We continue to look at the life of David. David and Saul. We've seen... David, over the past several chapters, as he was anointed the, the, the next king in Israel, but as we mentioned, uh, that, that it wasn't something that he took that throne right away. And we've looked at several things that have happened in his life since that, since that time. The slaying of Goliath, obviously, and the, and the accolades that came from that, but also that came from that, the jealousy and the hatred of King Saul that came against him. We've seen now that he has actually even had to flee his home, his family, everything, and run away from Saul. And we talked last time as we finished up chapter 23 that Saul was closing in on David and that God delivered David from that as he called Saul back to fight the Philistines. And as we left off last time, we mentioned that David ran from that place and went to the strongholds of En Gedi as we finished chapter 23. Chapter 24 begins verse 1, then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines and he was told saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. So Saul comes back, probably had military success, doesn't tell us, but no doubt chased the Philistines away. Now he comes back and we talked last time. There's, there's informants. There's people that are stabbing David in the back and saying they're right. They're over in En Gedi. They left where you had them cornered. They're over in the area of En Gedi. It says that Saul takes 3,000 chosen men. I mean, these are like the elite fighting forces that he now amasses, these 3,000 men to go after David and his couple hundred men that are discouraged and distraught and distressed, those that came to David. But no doubt, Saul wants to stack the odds in his favor, still not understanding that, that he's not fighting against David. He is fighting against God. And it doesn't matter what type of army you amass, you're not going to win when you fight against God. But Saul still doesn't understand this. This area of En Gedi, if you've ever been to Israel, is probably in your top two or three favorite sites to see. It is beautiful. 
It is right outside of the, the Dead Sea area, totally barren and wasteland around the Dead Sea. And then all of a sudden, here's this beautiful oasis that's cut into this crack into the mountain. And it's, it, is, it is such a neat place to walk back into this wildlife refuge. You see all sorts of amazing wildlife, and there's caves everywhere. It'd be like a little kid's dream, you know, to be able, a young boy's dream. And no doubt David spent time here because it's not terribly far from the area of Bethlehem and to take sheep into that area and so forth probably happened. David probably knew the area very well. A great water supply. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment um, uh, because it's al- it always, not, there's part of this story that never made sense to me until I went to En Gedi the first time. Verse 3 says, He came to the sheepfold on the way, that is Saul, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So Saul and his 3,000 men going through this area, Saul needs to relieve himself. If you have the King James, it puts it so poetically. It says he went in and covered his feet. Um, So whatever he needed to do to relieve himself, he needed to disrobe to do it, and you can take it from there. But David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Now, now there's a few hundred men with David, 600 actually, with David. Now, it doesn't tell us that all of them are in the cave, but a vast majority of them are probably in this cave with David. No doubt they saw Saul and his men coming up this ravine area and probably all ducked into this cave. Tells us that, no, does it tell us that anybody came in with Saul? Probably didn't, nobody volunteered for that duty. And he said, I'm probably all right just to go into the cave here. Then the men of David said, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I am about to give you, give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So his men are there with him and they're like, can you believe this? Can you believe this? God has brought him right here. This is a God thing. Here it's all of us. He's got 3,000 men out there. He decides to come in here all by himself. David, can you believe this? There he is, right there. God has delivered him into your hand. Now, I don't know about you, but right away, that, that was the thing that always bothered me. There's 600 men in a cave, and they're talking to David. There he is. And Saul doesn't hear it? How, how is that? I mean, you understand, in a cave, sound is amplified, and where does it go? It goes out the opening. It's bouncing off all of the walls, and goes out. How does that happen? Well, if you've ever been there, you see, you, we, we go back up into the back part of this, and you can see where the cave has since collapsed in, but there's a huge waterfall that's falling, a natural rock spring that comes right out of the wall and fills into this area. makes total sense. Matter of fact, you have to talk pretty loud to hear each other, even in that area. So that explains it. So there you go. Probably totally, none of you probably wondered that. But in case you ever did, there you go. (laughs) So, but it says this, Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, I can only imagine again as now David sneaks up behind Saul. No doubt now he's got his sword or his knife drawn and his his guys that are with him are like yeah here we go we are about ready to take over the kingdom Saul David sneaks up behind him cuts off a little corner of of Saul's robe and starts to come back they're like what 
But it tells us here that David's conscience was, was bothered even by that fact. Even by doing that, and that was a disrespectful thing to cut off any, any portion of the kingly robes or whatever that he might be wearing, a sign of even disrespect that he felt seared into his conscience even there. Interesting again when we look at this, because it doesn't record for us the conversation, but I have to imagine it wasn't a real popular decision by David to do this when he came back, but it was the right decision. It was the right thing not to kill Saul. And he knew that. It, it tells us that his conscience was bothered. His conscience. Guys, do you realize what a gift our conscience is? A gift. Many of us might say at times, I don't think it's a gift. As a matter of fact, it torments me, my conscience. When I do something, you know, guys, w- when, we, when, we, when we say something to our wives, and then we walk into the other room, and then you get that, and you're like, oh, Come on, I want to be right about this, <laughs> you know? But our conscience won't let us get away with that. Our consciences are a gift, a gift. And the bottom line is we can either follow our conscience or we can ignore our conscience. We can adhere to our conscience or the Bible tells us in a couple of ca- occasions in the New Testament, we can sear our conscience. What does it mean when we sear our conscience? Well, when you sear anything, when you burn anything, you lose feeling in that area. And our consciences, we can sear our consciences to the point where even though the Lord is definitely trying to speak to us and send us those signals, those Holy Spirit checks, I like to call them, when you get that and you're like, wait a second, all right, the Lord is definitely telling, as he promises in Isaiah 30, he says, I will tell you the right or the left. I will guard you. I will walk this with you. And we get those things. And we can sear our consciences to the point where we miss it. We can keep on walking. And we can think that we're doing fine. We've talked about that in the weeks past. Saul obviously was totally had seared his conscience, even to the point where he was thinking, as we look even back in the last couple of chapters, that God has delivered David into my own hand. Just the last chapter, Saul thought that God was delivering David into his own hand. Totally seared conscience. David, tender though. He took the position that was right, not the position that was popular. No doubt it was probably 600 to 1, but he knew it was the right thing to do. And he stood up for the right thing to do. That is a leader. David is a leader of men because he did the right thing, not the popular thing. It goes on to explain why his conscience was bothering him and in a response to what the men were no doubt saying. Verse 6, So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, little L, The Lord's, capital L, anointed. My Lord, my master, he is the king, and he is the one that has been anointed king, and until God deals with him and changes that, he is still my king on earth, my earthly king. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Far be it from me, basically what David is saying, and this is one of the huge takeaways that we need to grab a hold of as a lesson from this story for us. Far be it from me to take matters into my own hands when the sovereign God of the universe has his plan. 
And so often that is the case. We look for things and we can even misread things. And again, a blow right through the Holy Spirit stop signs in our conscience because, man, this has got to be it. This has got to be it. Look how things have all lined up. And we take matters into our own hands. And that is what they were trying to get him to do. And he had that check in his spirit. Now we can say, how do we possibly to stretch out my hand since he is the Lord's anointed? How do we draw that into ours? And just the way that, that I'm, I, I look at that, far be it from us to take matters into our hands to discipline someone else's child. To take matters into our own hands to deal with someone else's child. What, what, any parent in here, if you were to go outside, your, your kids were out front playing in the front yard, and you were to go outside and you were to see across the street your neighbor disciplining your child in their front yard because they had hit a ball over there or whatever, walked onto their property, legally trespassing, but they're disciplining your child. How would you react? I'll tell you how I'd react. I'd be, I'd be praying first. Lord, fill me with the Spirit right now because my flesh wants to take care of this problem right here. I say that to underscore the fact that when we step in now, David said, David said, far be it from me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Far be it from us to raise our hand against a child of God. Disciplining someone else's child. Especially when it comes to dealing with one another in the body. And that's what D David is speaking of here. This is the Lord's anointed. He is the king of Israel. Who am I to step in and discipline and, and take this into my own hands? And who are we to take matters into our own hands when dealing with the children of God? Keep your finger here, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Because Paul speaks about this very thing directly to us. And if anything, he makes it extremely personal for every one of us. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Paul writes, But those who persecute you bless and do not curse. Was David persecuted? I'll say. He was to the point where he had... Saul was literally attempting to take his life, to kill him physically. When we're persecuted, even amongst us, we can, we can. do we get hurt as we go through life? Absolutely. Do people step on us? Do people hurt us? Yes. Rarely can I, have I ever, well, I've never met anybody who could say, as David did, this person has literally tried to kill me. We're to bless those who persecute us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And here it is, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. So how often are we supposed to take our own revenge? One out of a hundred? I would circle that word. If you, if you underline, highlight anything in your Bible, circle that. It says never. Never. So that means, that means you, can, you, you can never have an excuse. You can never say, yeah, but. There's no yeah, buts in verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Why do you think that is? 
when I'm thinking through that, why, why is it that way? Is, is it because he wants to be the one that dishes out all the punishment? I don't believe so. I believe, again, and, and I refer to this verse often, 1 Peter 2.23 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Why are we not to take our own revenge and to leave vengeance to the Lord? Because he judges righteously. We don't. It's that simple. We don't. We can always, we will always, especially when it comes to somebody who has come against us, we will always mete out more punishment than what is deserved because, man, they stepped on me. It is never our job to take revenge or to defend ourselves. God is holy and just and righteous, and he is our defender. He's the only one qualified to take vengeance. Before we go back to 1 Samuel, turn to Psalm 57. It's on our way back to 1 Samuel. This is a psalm, as it tells us in the introduction, Psalm 57, that it's a psalm that David wrote when he fled from Saul in the cave. I love these psalms as they're laid out for us as we've looked at these and we, I, I do my best to continue to line these up as we go through and studying this because we're getting a, we're getting a glimpse into the, the heart of David and again those things that he used then to train these men. Verse 1, be, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. So David tells us here, when we're in these situations, what is our job? To rest, to take refuge, to wait. How long? Until it passes by. What's God's job? All things. <laughs> He accomplishes all things. He takes care of all of the rest of the stuff. Our job is to rest, to pray, to take refuge in him, and let him take care of the rest. Turn back a couple of pages more, Psalm 37. Again, no doubt, these things that David is, is training these 600 men that are with him. And to me, as I go through this, and I just, the training for us. Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Who's going to stand up for me? Who's going to show that I'm not wrong in this situation? If I don't stand up and let everybody know that they're wrong and I'm right, who's going to do that? Um, God will. He will bring forth your righteousness. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. But Lord, they're getting away with it. 
It seems like they could just go on and on and on, and, and everybody's listening to them. Nobody's listening to me. Everybody's following them. They're just getting away with it, Lord, don't you see? Yes, he does. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. Don't worry. Don't stress about it. But for those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land. Skip down to verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. The steps of the Lord are the steps of a man are established by the Lord. The steps are established, but so are the stops. We need to follow the Lord as he guides and leads, but we need to stop when he tells us to stop. We need to wait when he tells us to wait. We need to let him work when he says, take refuge in me. When our steps are ordained, our stops are contained. Our stumbles contained he's in control we need to trust in him and here we see david doing just that and he will we're not going to see this for quite a while in our story of david but he he gets he gets accused later on in his life when his son absalom tries to take the throne from him there's a man who's 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 taunting david on his way out of town saying this is because of the way you treated saul if he had treated saul he would have had room to say. But again, David, even in that, said, let the Lord deal with it. He can stand with a right heart. Well, back in our, our text here, verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went his way. He persuaded them. If you have a New King James, it says, restrained them. Now, he did not restrain them physically. There's no way David, as mighty as David is, don't forget, he's like early 20s. And he's got all of these men, 600 men. He didn't restrain them physically, but there was something about David that they said, I need to listen to him. There's something about him. He's, he's the one, there's no doubt God has anointed him. And if he is saying this, we need to listen to him. He persuaded them with his words and with his actions Verse 8, now after Saul arose, left the cave, and if you've been there in, in this area, you'll know what I mean. I mean, it's a pretty straight down canyon on both sides. So you're wondering, how is these, are these next verses going to take place? If there's 3,000 men, David's just going to walk outside the cave? No doubt, let Saul kind of go up, probably up on the other side, and up with, re, rejoin his other men. David now steps out. Verse 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said, Saul, why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? David is the one who is reaching out to Saul for reconciliation. He is the one who is making the effort to reconcile the relationship, to say, we need to fix this. And the first thing he said, why are you listening to other people? Why are you listening to the voices of men? Now, no doubt, Saul is the one, as we've seen, that has stirred this up. 
But there are no doubt, as we saw in previous chapters, there are those who would love nothing more than to just get close to Saul and build up Saul so that they can, they can get higher position and, and, and work their way up in Saul's view of things. No doubt, yeah, David, I've even heard that David's doing this. I've even heard he's amassing an army and he's going to come and to all of these types of things. And David says, why do you listen to the words of men? Why are you listening to what they are saying? And I need to, I want to stop there because this is something that destroys the body of Christ. This is something that tears at the very fabric of the church, and that's gossip. Why do you listen to the words of men? It's amazing that that's all it takes sometimes, is just one person to say to one other person, did you hear? Did you know that? And it doesn't, there, there doesn't have to be any factual data in the statement, but people buy it and believe it, and instead of stopping it right there, they go on to the next person and the next person. It might even start factual, saying, did you hear that? And they're like, oh, I didn't hear that. And by the time it gets around to the seventh or eighth person, nothing even resembles the original statement that was made. That's gossip. And God hates gossip. Proverbs, I don't remember what it is, Proverbs 16, I think, in there, tells us seven things that God hates. Three of them have to do with lying gossip. Three of the top seven things that God hates deals with that. Why? Because of the destruction that it causes. And there's one cure. Kill it. And you know how you kill gossip? When somebody comes to you and says, did you hear about, you say, I didn't. Let's go to them and get the confirmed story. Let's go together to them. That's the way you stop it. If it's true, if there is something going on, you can go to that and you can deal with that issue together. If it's wrong, they'll be like, <laughs> no, nah, that's right. Stop it. Kill it. God hates it. But it runs rampant, even through the body of Christ. Why do you listen to the words of men? Verse 10, behold, this day... Your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into, the, into my hand in the cave. And some said, kill you. I'm not going to tell you who. Somebody did. But my eye had pity on you. Again, a glimpse into David's heart. The man who was trying to kill him, David had compassion for. Kind of like the greater than David. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. David, a man after God's own heart, the heart that we need to have, having pity on those who are trying to destroy us. He said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father sees. And again, speaking to him with such respect. And I don't believe it's condescending. I don't believe that it's, that it's false respect. I believe that, again, David truly respects Saul would like nothing more than for Saul to truly repent. See, my father, this idea of respect, and he is, he's his father-in-law married to his daughter. See, my father, indeed you see the edge of your robe is in my hand. And it could be, it could have been your head, but it's the corner of your robe because I have compassion on you. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. 
know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. Here again, verse... Don't do that again. Where was I? Verse 12. Feeding right into, again, what we, we saw in Romans and, and as he played out here. The Lord, the Lord deal with it. Now may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. The Lord will deal with this. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. Makes sense. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? I'm no threat to you. I, 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 first of all, I'm not trying to, to come against you. But secondly, seriously, you brought 3,000 special forces out? Who am I? The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul. Here we see what we would all hope would be a brokenness in Saul that would lead to repentance. Repentance being not just an admission of guilt, but repentance means a changing of your mind, a changing of your mind that results in a change of your behavior, a change in your life. But unfortunately, we see a perfect example here again of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Unfortunately, we're going to see that this does not lead to repentance for Saul. It leads to a temporary calling out, a temporary feeling of, of guilt. But it does not lead to repentance leading to salvation if Saul, again, I believe it, if Saul would have right here fallen down, repented, turned, taken off his kingly robes, placed them on David, and said, you are the rightful king, God would have blessed Saul. I believe it. God would have blessed Saul. I believe David probably would have made him captain of the army. But Saul does not take that step. And so often, it's 
this, this is what hardens his heart even more because he doesn't take that final next step. Many people come and have emotional experiences at church, at retreats, at getaways, at those types of things. They're moved emotionally. They're even convicted to the point of tears. But it doesn't lead to repentance. It does not lead to a changing of your mind, a turning away from sin and turning to the Lord and following then the Lord from that time on. And if it doesn't lead to that, what it does lead is to a hardening of the heart, a searing more of the conscience. And we see again, no doubt, that the Lord probably spoke to David's heart because we see David, David swore to Saul and Saul went to his house, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. <laughs> Doesn't say that David followed him with his men into Jerusalem. David, David, David didn't believe Saul. And in that, I see again that, that, that blindly trusting someone that has hurt, that has betrayed in the past, just blindly trusting them is not part of forgiveness. Forgiveness means you wipe the slate clean. You no longer hold anything against someone. That is, that is forgiveness. But trust takes a while to be rebuilt. And I've, I've, I've been a part of counseling before where people are like, well, she said she forgave me, but, well, that but is natural. That takes time to rebuild trust. And Saul, obviously here in this point, wasn't warranting any trust, and he truly did not repent. We're going to unfortunately see that he goes back on his word and even in the next chapter, after we get to, through chapter 25 into chapter 26, we're going to see that he comes after David again. Chapter 25, a little time to get started in it anyway. Verse 1, then Samuel died. We haven't heard from Samuel in a couple chapters. Not much at all from him for several chapters. He's been doing some training of some other prophets and, and pouring into them, but he's kind of pulled back from the big public life. As we mentioned, Samuel was the last of the judges, Saul then being the first of the kings. Samuel dies, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel, this amazing man of God. If you weren't with us through that study, I would encourage you to go back to the chapter 1 and, and read about his life. And the fact that here is a man who followed after the Lord with all that he had from a very early age, all the way through his life. His testimony is an amazing testimony because he walked with God his entire life. You young people in here, don't think that you have to go out and get some crazy story in your life to have a testimony. There's a whole lot of people in this room, including this guy, that wishes I had lived for the Lord every day of my life. That, that there's some people out there that feel that their testimony is this ridiculously horrible life that God delivered them from. No, our testimony is what God has done in our life. And what a great testimony that you can say, I've followed him my whole life. 
that's what Samuel did. And Samuel followed God his whole life, even when it wasn't popular. Even when he was the only one at times. And you young people, you're going to face that. You're going to be in situations when all of your friends are going to want to go do something else. All of your friends are going to want to run off and, and do something that you know God, isn't, God doesn't like. You're going to have to make those stands. You're going to have to make those choices. And let me tell you from one who's, who has experience, I wish I'd have done the right thing. I'm not proud of the, the, the parts of my testimony that are those where I made those wrong decisions. Don't, don't follow after them. Be like Samuel. Do the right thing. Follow the Lord all the days of your life. There's no greater testimony than that. We see that even though the people went against Samuel, they were the ones who demanded a king, even though Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. Trust me, you don't want a king. They, they went against him anyway and all, and all of this, and he still had this amazing love for the people and the witness that he was to them. It, this, this word that it talks about here, they gathered together and mourned for him. It's, that's where they're, they're tearing their clothes and the ashes and the sackcloth, and they mourned for this man because, again, the last of the, 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 that godly judge Verse 2, David, David doesn't go back for this, no doubt had his own time of mourning. Verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Now this is not the Carmel that's up north where, where Elijah up on Mount Carmel. This is the Carmel that is down in southern Israel, down by Sinai area. He had a business in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, that is exorbitantly rich at that time. If you had a, if you had a couple hundred sheep, you were extremely wealthy. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep. And now, there's a verse stuck in here that gives us a little bit more information, because verse 3 kind of continues or verse 2 kind of continues in verse 4. Verse 3 tells us that the man's name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Interesting, the word, the, the name Nabal means fool. Thanks, Mom. Right? I mean, I... You wonder how that all came about, you know, so, and most believe that that wasn't the name that he actually went around with during his life, that, that this, he was given this name afterwards. Um, can you imagine? What's up, fool? You know, <laughs> that didn't mean the same thing back then. <laughs> Abigail, however, means father, Abba, father. Abigail means father rejoicing. And you wonder, you, you wonder how that came about. You know, maybe, maybe they had, you know, six boys and they're praying for a girl and here she is or whatever. But father rejoicing. It says that she's beautiful, she's intelligent. How does... How does father rejoicing, beautiful, intelligent woman end up with 
fool. I don't know. You'd have to ask her. She's right back there after the service. Just ask her how that happened. I don't know. I praise God every day. Thank him every day for it. Anyway. <laughs> Came about while he was shearing his sheep, verse 4, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, this was a big deal. When the sheep shearers got together, and, and, or the sheep owners got together, and they'd shear the sheep, it was just like the time of the harvest when they would go out and they'd bring in the harvest. It was a big-time festival that was about to take place. And no doubt, again, Nabal, being this very wealthy man, no doubt has many servants, as we're going to see, big-time festival party about to take place. So David hears that this is going on, that this has begun in verse 5. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them. Nor have, we missed, or nor have they missed anything all the days that we were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come, to, we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. We find out as we will continue reading. I don't think we'll get there tonight. No, we won't. We'll find out later... That not only were they together, and David puts in here saying, we didn't, we didn't mess around with your guys, we didn't take anything, nothing ever went missing, but we're going to find out that they even protected Nabal's men and the sheep. They used the word, coming at, anyway, like they were a wall around us. They protected us. So David is just saying, go on down there. You know, we got a big army of people and, and we've been hanging out together and we've been protecting and we've been doing this. So go down there, introduce, say, hey, David says, David says, hello, God bless you. And see if he'd be willing to just share some of the, some of the spoils with us. Verse nine, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all of these words in David's name. And then they waited. But Nabal, Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from their master. Who's David? Son of Jesse. Whole bunch of slaves have run away from their masters. They're all over the place. Obviously insulting David greatly. Notice Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and I, that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to the men whose origin I do not know? Got an eye problem. So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. So they go back and report to David. David, he said, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. Saddle up, boys. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Now, 
We only have a couple of minutes here, so we'll touch on this point. We'll come back here next time. But here we see David gets insulted by this guy who's got his sheep shearers and, and all of that, personally insulted from him, and he says, get your weapons, we're going to go take care of business. Is this the same guy that we just read about in the previous chapter? Same David? I mean, can you I, I only imagine again, as the word started going through the 600 men, hey, strap on your swords, get ready, we're going to fight. Is it the Philistines? No, no, it's not. Is it, is it Saul? No, uh-uh. What, what, Goliath's brothers are coming? Uh-uh, it's just this stupid rancher down the road. Isn't it funny how we can face a giant? We can face the royal problem. But it's the silly, insignificant things that get us off the rails. Any other husband and wife argue about dumb stuff? <laughs> I mean, the major stuff our kids' issues and, and different things like that. Man, we can get together and we can pray and we can, oh, but man, you leave the toilet seat up and, oh, <laughs> You put the toilet paper on over again. It's supposed to go under and, <laughs> Guy, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Guys, that's where the enemy wants to hit us. That's where he comes in and he gets those, those things because we're not ready. We don't look for it there. We're, we're prayed up and we're ready for the, for the big things. We pray, we're on our knees together praying for those things, but we neglect that other stuff. And it's just, it, there's way more Nabals out there than there are Goliaths. We need to be praying about those just as diligently. Because again, the enemy knows where those things are. He praying that, that, our, that, we, that, that we wouldn't get so tender. About what difference does it make to David, really, that he insulted you? Oh, big deal. Sticks and stones. Proverbs 26, 4, don't answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. We get sucked into the foolishness. We need to be above that. Well, probably retract a little, back up a little bit and get a running start next time. So if we want to read ahead, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the very real practical life that it is to us. Your word is alive and it is active. Lord, we thank you for these stories and how clearly they speak to us today. Lord, we want to be like the David in the cave, not the David that we just spoke of. Lord, we want to be used by you as an example of those who trust in you, who wait on you, who allow you to take care of those that might be coming against us. 
that we would be an example of grace and love and mercy and patience. Not an example of a fool. So Lord, we do pray that, that we would be even more diligent in our efforts to make sure that all of our armor is on all of the time. Lord, we thank you for bringing Jacob and Christina here with us tonight. We ask that you just bless them on their travels, keep them safe, continue to use them to bring your gospel through music to across this country. Lord, we thank you for bringing them here tonight. Go before us now, Lord, as we, as we walk the rest of this week. We want to hear from you. Lord, speak to our consciences. Direct us. It's whisper in our ear, the right and to the left, and that we would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.